episode one of How to Chatter, the podcast, sponsored by Inside Credit Union. And I'm your host, Ricky Hazel. I'm joined today by the only person I could think of that logically would belong in the first podcast, and that's our athletic director, Jeff Altier. Jeff, welcome to the first How to Chatter podcast. Oh, thank you, Ricky. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I have to tell you that uh, the first thing I want to do whenever I get on a podcast or a radio broadcast is say go Hatters, uh, because this is where we get the word out about our Stetson Hatters and, and everything that's athletics and dealing with Stetson University. And that's, that's the purpose of this podcast is not only to get word out about what's going on in Stetson Athletics, but also kind of to pull the curtain back a little bit on the people not only the, the coaches and the student athletes, but you know administrators and other people that work in and around athletics and are part of it that, that fans may see but may not know anything about. But to get things started, I guess the first thing we need to do is address the world we're in now and how it is impacting what you're doing every day and how uh, obviously the athletic department is operating because there, obviously there are no games. So it's obviously a huge impact and it's got to be a stressful environment for you. Well, uh, it has been, I think stressful more than anything because uh, it's been uh, different challenges and things that are new. And, and what I've always found uh, to me in the routine is never difficult. It's, it's those things that are unique opportunities, things you've never dealt with before. That's when it becomes challenging and stressful. So uh, it was interesting. I, I met with Coach Hughes today and earlier and just talking about the, uh, how my world has changed. And I said, well, from a work standpoint, it hasn't really changed. I, I get in somewhere between 7.30 and 8 in the morning, and I leave somewhere around 5.30 or 6 in the evening. Uh, the difference being I'm not going back to a baseball game or a softball game or a beach volleyball or whatever sport that is out there that would be active, I would be going back to those events. And I'm not doing that. And, and the interesting thing is, though that's probably the most enjoyable part of my job, uh, is getting the opportunity to go and, and watch our teams play and compete and see that the efforts that I put in during the day and weekends is is to make sure that the, the students have that opportunity to be successful and, and to compete in that arena. I, I also take great pride and satisfaction in seeing the level of competition, uh, seeing our coaches and the, the staff that are there that, that I know um, in large part um, are, are in the position that they're in now because of things that we've been able to do over the past decades from a university standpoint and from an athletic standpoint. So as this has unfolded, obviously there have been a lot of different things you've had to negotiate. One of the first things that comes to mind is obviously the cancellation of the games and the process that went into making the decision to, to cancel the games back in the middle of March. Yeah, the there was a lot that went into it, as you obviously could see. We, uh, as, as part of my role with the university overall, um, I'm a member of the university's emergency management team. Uh, I'm also part of the university, the president's cabinet, uh, and a part of the vice president's operational group. Uh, so all three of those groups have been meeting multiple times a week since early March uh, in an effort to help try to guide the university 
making the best decisions possible uh, about the future. And, and one of those things that, that impacted the world that, that I have oversight of, which certainly were those things that interacted with intercollegiate athletics. So from early on, we were looking at all of the activity as it related just to Stetson and saying, okay, are our student athletes, are our staff, are our coaches uh, in a position that they're still safe and they're in a healthy environment and, uh, and our fans and spectators are, are we're, we're making sure we're making decisions that are protecting them. And so all along, we're trying to make those decisions. And this was pre NCAA making any decisions. And then all of a sudden the hammer gets dropped from the NCAA's perspective and says, we're the first hammer was we're going to host the NCAA basketball tournament with only games and with no spectators in the attendance. Well, that immediately triggered uh, for our emergency management team and for our VP ops groups, hey, we've got to look at this at a different level now because what the NCAA is getting ready to do is, um, is walk away from a significant amount of revenue in the attendees at the event. Uh, and just a couple days later, they came out and said, you know what, we're not only canceling spectators, we're canceling the entire event, which again set an even higher level of, of awareness and uh, risk because that's 90% of the NCAA's revenue they just said for a year, buy. And so when that decision made, that came back to us and we said, all right, this is what we've got. We've got Stetson, we've got the NCAA, we've got our conference members. And so we started having uh, regular conversations with the ASUN conference, which was primarily the sport that, that monitors our uh, varsity sports and the MAC, uh, the Metro Athletic, Atlantic Athletic Conference, uh, which regulates our, our crew teams. And those conversations started leading towards it looks like it's unsafe uh, to be holding these sporting events for spectators. So within a couple of days, the ASUN decided to cancel, the MAC decided to cancel, and we took that in and said, okay, uh, we're not going to have any competitions for the remainder of the year. And that was an extremely stressful decision because you've got all of our coaches who contracts in many cases are dependent upon uh, performance clauses within their agreements which govern and regulate their compensation. It regulates and governs their uh, stability in their contracts. Uh, and then you have the impact upon the senior student athletes and the, all of the student athletes, not just the seniors. So you're trying to make the right decisions by them. And as a result, our decision was uh, to, to take follow the lead with the NCAA, with the ASUN, and uh, with the MAC and say, we've, we're not gonna try to compete anymore in this fall, we're gonna cancel all events. And then just a few days later, we decided we're not even gonna let our, our teams practice uh, because of the health risk uh, that's associated with it. And then just a few days after that, the governor issued an executive order, which said no weight room use, uh, no activity in that light. And, uh, and we pretty much closed every athletic facility we had at that point, with the exception of those student athletes that were going through rehabilitation for injuries. There really was a lot of dominoes started to fall that 
really took a lot of the decision work out of your hands. Yeah, it, it did. Uh, and then you tried to look in those terms and you started to think to yourself, are we making decisions in the right time frame? So we came up with a general philosophy, which was driven uh, significantly from athletics, is let's make our decisions in eight to 10 week intervals. Because there are, uh, you know, you, what you're always stuck in is that, uh, what is the right time frame to make a decision? And so by defining what that time frame would be for us, it gave everybody out there, it started to remove some of the uncertainty that goes along with the decision and allows them benchmarks to start saying, okay, I know when a decision's gonna be made, so I don't have to ask 50 times. You know, the people we're used to dealing with are uh, assertive, uh, they are, they're not shy, they're willing to uh, continue. The reason they've been successful, they've been aggressive, they've, they're willing to push and push and push. And I want that, and that's the type of people I want to hire. Uh, so when it comes to something like this, if I can give them a time frame, which defines for them when we will be making those decisions, it's easier for them to then wrap their arms around, this is the point in time decisions will be made. I have yet to have one of, every member of our coaching staff and uh, support staff has supported the decisions we've been made. I've been very proud of everybody. It's, there has not been a single um, I mean, there's been a lot of people that have been disappointed, but at the same time, nobody has come out and said, oh, you're making a wrong decision in that regards. It's all been, thank you, we're supporting it, we're moving forward, and we're trying to make the best of it. Obviously, once the games were canceled, the events were canceled, no more practice, no more workouts, everybody went home, the next thought is, all right, now what? Uh, how do we take care of these student-athletes, seniors that were going to graduate, and how, how do we make them whole? And the NCAA comes forward and says they can come back for another year. Then that opens up a whole new set of problems for you. Talk about the process of going through what you're going through to try to make that work. So, uh, you know, it was, it was a, I'm so supportive of the NCAA. I think they made a great decision in extending everybody's clock and giving them another year of eligibility and in all the rules that they had to change to allow this to happen. The one difficult part of it all is that all of the, we had anticipated all these students were leaving school. So we had spent their athletic scholarship already for next year on students that are coming in to replace them. So what we end up with by the NCAA making this decision and passing these rules is we have all these students that want to come back of our 27 graduating uh, students that have exhausted their eligibility. Uh, 18 of them said, I'm, I don't feel like I'm done. I, I need to, I need to continue. I need to get that last year in or out of my system, which I can relate to. And I'll tell you about that later sometime, but they were all simply trying to feel like, how do we do this? So what, came back to us and for me from a university's perspective is, I want this for these kids. I mean, I, these kids have been here, many of them for four years. They, they poured their heart and soul into becoming, to being hatters, to excelling in our baseball and volleyball and golf and tennis and, and you name it, uh, the, those programs. And, and so I wanna be supportive of them, but there's no money to do this. And 
Um, I've got to figure out now, and I've got to work with the university administration, how do we make this possible that we can afford to extend some additional scholarship money for these students to return and have a senior year experience? So that's what I've uh, been working on for the last three weeks, I will tell you, or two weeks. I will tell you that we're at a point that we're, uh, I'm going to announce to the head coaches tomorrow, this is where we are. We're comfortable that we can make this offer to these students to return, which will provide them with some support uh, for them to be able to come back and, and play one more year. Um, and, and I feel good about it. I feel good that we've looked after their interest. Uh, we've looked at the university's interest. And, and I think everybody will appreciate what we're trying to do. The question I have, and, and, and may, maybe you can answer it, is does this become a rolling four-year issue where juniors that were juniors this year, are they juniors again next year? Sophomores that were sophomores this year, are they sophomores again next year? Freshmen, freshmen again. So it becomes a rolling four-year issue. Well, they are. Uh, that it is, it is a rolling issue, and all of these students are given an extra year of eligibility. So this will all roll forward. Uh, in part, it will start to uh, become less of an issue. So it's, it's not um, accelerated by time. What, what actually happens in this case? So we have, uh, we, have, we have all of our commitments for the fall of 20 entering class. And we have the majority of our commitments for the fall of 21. But those kids have not signed a national letter of intent. They have not signed a scholarship paper. So what you now will do is you'll go back to these young men and these young women and say, look, here's our situation has changed from the day that we talked about this scholarship offer. Uh, we still want to honor our commitment and we will honor all of our commitments. But let me tell you what the new environment is. Before where we were projecting that you would be replacing a senior that was graduating, well, that senior's returning now. So you're going to be here while that same person is here. So the playing time that you thought you were going to get, probably you're not going to get as much. So I think it's important, it's an incumbent upon us to be transparent with those incoming students to allow them the ability to make a decision that may be different than what they made before. And, um, and so I think what will start to happen is the, the roll forward will start to become less and less. So. Uh, if you, if you were to use it in percentages this next year, you're going to have about 90% of the issue. The subsequent year, it's going to be about 60% of the issue. And the subsequent year, about 10% of the issue. So it's going to decline into severity to you uh, because of the variables that will occur between now and then. The decline will be for us, but if you look at the thing from the perspective of the 2021 high school graduate, all of a sudden now opportunities have become much more difficult to find. Yeah, uh, they are. And, but, but you've also, you, we're going to be living in this uh, post COVID-19 uh, world for the next couple of years until uh, our immunities are built up to it. And there'll be uh, students and student athletes who will elect to forgo their uh, scholarship opportunity to stay closer to home. So it's not just going to be one-sided. It, it will be both-sided on this. And, and, and I expect that to happen. And I think that um, I think we'll see that a lot. I, th I think that one of the reasons why the NCAA right now is trying 
to uh, work on the transfer waiver group uh, and, and get rid of, to, to uh, change the transfers uh, rules is to allow people to be able to go closer to home because of concerns with COVID-19. And if nothing else, to use that as a reason why they want to move closer to home. And, and I think you're gonna see that uh, significant. I don't, I don't think it's a minor issue, and, and I think it's a significant issue. So it's gonna happen on both sides. We're gonna lose some students, because as you know, we recruit nationally. Uh, we're a private university. Uh, because we're a private university, our footprint reaches across the country. Um, and with that footprint, there'll be students that'll say to us, I want to be a little bit closer to home. I, I don't want to travel that far. Uh, even though coming to Stetson University may be the best decision they ever made because we're in a rural community. We are small. We are, we look out after each other. And if you look at the, the incident uh, percentages of people that have got COVID-19 in our area, it's, it's minimal compared to the larger populations. And that's where you've got the greatest risk. Uh, so I, I think there may be advantages for being in a, in a community like us, and I, and I think it'll probably serve us well. There's a, there's a two-part question. First, the impact on enrollment in general for the university for this. Secondly, what impact do you see from there, not every school is going to honor the extra year for their seniors. So all of those student athletes across the country that aren't going to have that extra year honored are looking for a place to go. And obviously there's some talented student athletes out there. So in addition to the student athletes coming back and the student athletes recruited, there's an opportunity to bring in even more older student athletes, not only to help enrollment, but to boost the performance on the field for the teams. How do you juggle that? And how does, how does that work for for Stetson in particular. So to answer the first one, I'm talking with a lot of the ADs at, at the state schools. Uh, they're projecting anywhere around a 30% reduction in their fall enrollment, uh, which could be catastrophic for a lot of uh, institutions. Uh, we expect uh, some decline in enrollment, but nowhere near uh, that amount. Um, our, our deposit numbers are solid. Uh, we're looking like we are, we're down a little bit over where we've been historically at this point, but it's not been at a significant level. So we're not, we're not projecting that same level of decline maybe as uh, the other institutions. Second part of that question is, we have this tremendous graduate program, which again, we're in a rural environment, uh, but this tremendous graduate in, in our MBA program in particular, the School of Business, um, which is just simply outstanding and presents to itself a tremendous educational opportunity at a very, very high level for quality division one athletes to evaluate and say, you know what, I've got one year left or I've got two years left on my clock. Could you think of a better place to be than in the state of Florida, 20 minutes from the beach, uh, where you're still allowed to run on the beach and exercise on the beach, even when you have COVID-19? And so for us, can you think of a better place to be? And, and I think a lot of students are gonna be looking at that and saying, you know what, I could get, like they look at Stetson, a quality, quality education, in this case, a quality MBA or a quality MFA, Masters of Fine Arts degree, and attend in the state of Florida in a rural environment where the COVID-19 has been almost a non-factor or a non-issue, 
could I do that? Is that a great opportunity? Well, yes, it is. It's a tremendous opportunity. And how do our coaches manage that from a scholarship numbers? Are those kids going to be expected to primarily be walk-ons and pay their own way, or how is that going to work? Because scholarship numbers are going to change because NCAA limits are out the door. But still, from a financial standpoint, it's not unlimited money. The part, the only part that's changed is for those students that are at your institution in their last year of eligibility, um, being able to return. That's the only increase that you've seen in financial aid. I don't see, I don't anticipate any additional financial aid increases. Uh, so from a Stetson standpoint, we would treat all of these incoming students as we would normally in any year, because we do get transfers in that are graduate students. Uh, we've had some uh, phenomenal beach volleyball transfers in, uh, in this regard. And, and I think we'll continue to give more. So they will be eligible for our scholarship allocations that we have within our, our programs and our teams. Uh, our graduate business program also offers a merit scholarship, uh, which for those students that have a tremendous GMAT score and, a, and good grades, they can qualify for up to $5,000 a year in uh, merit aid to help them with their overall cost. And, and unlike a lot of state schools, our graduate tuition costs are very moderate and, and uh, very attractive uh, in a very in a high quality program. So I, I think Stets becomes an extremely attractive option, but it'll be primarily with uh, a walk-on perspective or merit. When I talk about merit, I'm talking about academic merit scholarships uh, as they move forward. So one part of this hasn't really come up yet public in public discussions is the impact this is all going to have going forward on scheduling. Obviously, budgets are going to be reduced, money is going to be tighter, and in a conference that stretches from Newark, New Jersey to Fort Myers, Florida, with a new school coming in from Louisville, Kentucky, travel is, is difficult. I mean, it's already expensive to travel and is not going to get any less expensive without changing the way schedules are done. How has that been addressed and what do you expect to see moving forward? There's actually two issues you have with travel. One is the health-related uh, issues with COVID-19. And then the second is the budget-related issues as a result of COVID-19. So uh, the first one is the health issue. Uh, we really don't know how we're going to treat that at this time. Um, you know, one of the things, Ricky, that, that we've talked about within our management group is using an eight to 10 week window to make decisions. Try not to make decisions further than eight to 10 weeks out. And we do that so we can define that time frame. Uh, but it's hard to project what's gonna happen. I mean, right now, the COVID-19 appears to have hit a, uh, a plateau point. Now, I'm not sure we can say that it's plateaued, but we've hit that plat, we think we're at a plateau, plateau point. But we really won't know if we have hit the plateau and still starts to decline. Even once that occurs, we're still running into the issue of, can we return to full operations in August or September? Is it going to diminish or is there gonna be immunities enough? Or are there going to be an immunization program that allows us 
to move forward safely from a health and safety standpoint first and foremost? That's the first question I don't know the answer to. And I don't, I don't know how quickly we're gonna to get to that answer. I just know that eight to 10 weeks out, I'm starting to make decisions. I have to look into the future and say, are we gonna play football? Are we gonna play volleyball? Are we gonna play soccer this fall? And my hope is that we will, but I don't know that. I don't know that yet. And I will not know that until we get closer to that time frame to see what's happening in our current environment and to see what's happening on the medical field. The second part of that question is the implication already of COVID-19 upon budgets. And, and I can tell you uh, right now is COVID-19 is probably diminished our income for next year between the NCAA distribution and lost ticket revenue. Uh, we're probably down a million to start and we're gonna have to figure out if there's ways that we can make up that differential. That's if enrollment is maintained. So we've also got to anticipate there's going to be some reduction in enrollment. So we're going to have to start cutting or belt tightening across the board. Uh, I'm not an alarmist. Uh, so you haven't seen me out there with my coaches and, and, and saying that we need to change things dramatically at this point. I'm, I'm somebody that is working at this and saying, I know we're going to have change. I know we're going to have reductions. I know we're a million down in income to start and we're probably going to be down in operating budget to start. Uh, so start planning now. Start uh, minimizing your expenditures to only those things that are required. Now, when we look at conference play, which is a big part of our competition and our travel is a significant part, uh, we have been talking with the ASUN conference about are there options, are there ways for us to complete our, our, our conference conference competitions so we can declare champions and we can declare a season of competition. But to do that in a format that would reduce travel and reduce the health risk for our students to, to go out and travel. So I know of schools that are uh, claiming that they're not going to travel by airplane next year. Truthfully, I don't know that we could manage that from a Stetson perspective with between our Pioneer Football League and, uh, and the crew and rowing and our ASUN conference, I'm not sure that that's even feasible. But if it is, we need to evaluate that. We need to be looking and saying, let's start seeing, does it, can the ASUN actually go to some type of divisional play to reduce the travel? And if so, would that save us money? Uh, and what, how do, what does that look like? And uh, so those things are starting to be asked right now and trying to determine uh, how do we manage that. Assuming things don't go forward into the fall, how does restarting look? How do, how do things start getting back to normal once we get the go ahead to do that? Well, I looked at the FCS, uh, let me see, the group of five AD sent a letter to the NCAA and just said, look, uh, we know we're moving forward as though everything is going to be normal but we recognize it probably won't be normal. And if it gets worse than what we think that it may be, we may need some relief on NCAA rules regarding sports sponsorships and a number of contests and, and all of those. So there are so many variables in that. I'm not sure that we can answer that specifically. I, I would tell you for me, restarting starts to look like this. 
uh, I talk with my football coaches, I talk with my soccer coaches, I talk with my volleyball coaches, and I ask them, how much time do you need to get your student athletes in a competition perspective to be able to compete and be safe from a health and safety standpoint? So you cannot, as a human being, go from zero to being an intercollegiate college football player or intercollegiate college volleyball player. You can't go from day one not having done anything to day two competing. There's got to be an acclimation process and time frame that puts you in the position that you're prepared physically to collide with another human being at 100% or the ground or the ball at 100%. And I need them to be able to tell me how long that is. So right now we typically do that on a, a three week to four week time frame, uh, And that's starting from a position of being already in shape. So what happens if we can't get them in shape until that point, what do we need time-wise to get there? And, and so those are the questions that we're asking to understand. So if they come back to me and we'll just use some, uh, hypothetical numbers, they come back to me and say, it takes three weeks, absolute minimum three weeks from start to compete. And I, then what we do is we look at our competitive schedules and our calendars and say, okay, if it takes three weeks, then we're going to go back from that date, from the date we declare the first competition, three weeks back, that's when we'll start. And then depending on the time of year that is and the sport, um, we can look at it and say, okay, we can play that in the winter time outside, or we can play that in the winter time inside. Uh, you know, like nice thing for us in Florida. This is why it's a great sales job for the state of Florida and coming to Deland, Florida, to play your intercollegiate competitions, is because year-round we can pretty much be outside. Uh, but there's a lot of parts of the country that you can't do that. So. We've got to be able to make sure we write the rules and allow the schedules to accommodate for schools in the dead of winter. Can we delay the start of football six weeks and continue to have a full season? I don't know. You mentioned one thing that, that we haven't talked about, and that is the impact on schools dropping sports. And you've already seen schools start announcing they're dropping sports. That's going to be the most difficult decision anybody could ever make is to do away with sports programs. And, and when do you come to that realization that, Things have to change. Yeah, I, it, is, it would be a really difficult uh, decision um, to make. Uh, I've never been part of that uh, decision uh, while at Stetson. Uh, the only thing that we've done since I've been AD here is add sports to me and add participation opportunities. It, it would be a really tough decision. I, I would tell you that uh, for me, I, if anything, if we have to go that route, if there is a, a savings that we have to realize that's that large, uh, I would start looking at decisions possibly to suspend uh, activity for X period of time, uh, giving us uh, years to get back in position. Because no matter what decision you look at, uh, you know, next year is going to be the worst. The year after will be less, uh, less than bad. So it will be, start to become better and it will become better and better. So you really don't have to resolve next year's decision next year. You have to resolve next year's decision over the next three years. And, and so that gives you a little bit of latitude to start saying, okay, if 
that if it's a million dollar issue, really maybe it's only a five hundred thousand dollars, but two hundred fifty thousand in subsequent years that I have to address. So you start looking at things in a little bit different perspective, giving it some magnitude, which allows you to uh, to to make decisions that are not knee-jerk reactions. And that's the one thing that we will not do. We will not make a knee-jerk reaction. We will not make a, a seat of the pants reaction and say, ah, we're gonna get rid of this. That doesn't happen. For me, it's all about the, the statistical evidence of does how does this support the institution, the institution's mission, uh, which is to provide an, an excellent championship culture and experience for our student athletes. And for us, in a, in a private university of 3,100, uh, having 450 student athletes on this campus is an important part of who we are. And my goal is to make sure we have it. The impact of dropping sports, though, can be felt in scheduling. If you know, we schedule a lot of northern schools in the springtime, especially, to come play in non-conference events, and all of a sudden those schools aren't sponsoring those sports anymore, scheduling becomes a much more difficult challenge. Yeah, Ricky, I would, I would tell you, for me, I think more of what's going to happen than the sports dropping, I think there'll be some uh, continue to be sports being dropped. I don't disagree with you. But I see what's going to happen over the fall and the spring is schools that typically would come make a southern trip, uh, not a conference southern trip, but a, but a non-conference southern trip, I think they're going to forego those. I, I think a lot of those trips are going to be looked at as being uh, superfluous. Uh, they're going to look and say, okay, well, we can play somebody down the road. It's health-wise safer, and it costs us far less to do that. And maybe for the next two years, that's what we do. I would look at our own programs. I would look at our golf programs and say, you know, can we replace a, a tournament in Hawaii with a tournament in uh, Miami? And the answer is yes, we can. Uh, and we need to be doing that in the year to be coming. Because, you know, it is, those are wonderful experiences that we can provide to our student athletes. But in this time frame, we've got to be looking at two things, health and safety and cost uh, associated with both. Insight Credit Union is a proud partner of Stetson University Athletics. Insight has been bringing better banking to Central Florida for nearly 85 years. Insight Credit Union is your local go-to for lower rates on auto and other loans, credit cards, and more. Insight Credit Union and you, better together. All right, let's move on to something a little more positive in tone. Let's talk about Jeff Altier and the road to where you are now. Sarasota, Florida native. Uh, Stetson wasn't your first place you went to school. Talk a little bit about your road to getting to Stetson and how you wound up here. Yeah, it, it was uh, coming out of high school in Sarasota, which was a very nice baseball region of the country. I was a very attractive athlete for many programs. I was, I was a good athlete, a good baseball player, and a very uh, good student. Uh, so when I looked at my options, Stetson was one of the schools that I looked at, but it was... Uh, in my eyes at that time, it was cost prohibitive for me to go to Stetson. So uh, I was recruited more heavily by Georgia Southern, ended up going to Georgia Southern uh, and being part of one of the, the tremendous baseball teams that I've had the privilege of being associated with in my career. Uh, played with uh, Scott Fletcher, who ended up spending uh, 15 years in the big leagues. Uh, 
tremendous player and, and, and Mark Struker, who set the NCAA record in home runs in that year. It, it was just a, a, a wonderful group of athletes up at Georgia Southern and Statesboro, Georgia. I will tell you there, we carried a roster of 27. I was one of three catchers on the team. I got for a freshman, I caught in about nine games that year, which I thought on a 60 game schedule was uh, impressive, especially considering that the uh, student in front of me, Carmelo Aguayo, was a uh, was a freshman All-American. Um, so I ended up uh, at the end of the year saying, well, I can play in another nine or 10 games next year and, and stay at Georgia Southern, or I can go to a junior college and play and naturally having played my whole career, like most of our division one athletes, I'd elected to go to a junior college and, and play. So when I looked for that, I ended up at Seminole Community College. Uh, I had spoken with a lot of the junior colleges in the state of Florida coming back. Um, and the opportunity that best presented itself was at Seminole because they did not have a returning catcher and they were looking for somebody. And I didn't want to put myself in the same position I had been at Georgia Southern. So um, I went back. I had a, a good career at junior college uh, just down the road at that time. In the fall, Stetson used to play uh, Seminoles uh, Community College uh, twice a week. And so I was up here at Old Conrad Park in Deland, Florida, twice a week in the fall, playing against Stetson. Uh, when it came down to it, uh, I had uh, two significant opportunities to leave Seminole State and uh, move on. One was at Florida State and one was at Stetson. Dick Hauser was a person who recruited me up to Florida State. Dick Hauser left after the fall of that year. Mike Martin took over for Dick Hauser. Uh, I went up and visited with Coach Martin on my official visit. Uh, said he would love for me to be there, but in his mind, I was gonna be the backup to the catcher that was there. Uh, and then I came and spoke to Coach Dunn. And Coach Dunn uh, simply said, uh, I have a catcher returning, but I think that you're gonna challenge him for the starting role with us. and." we would uh, love for you to be here. Um, that combined with uh, Mike Burgermeister, who was my uh, roommate at that time, had already signed with Stetson and was coming to Stetson. I decided that this was the right place for me to be. Now, going back to Georgia Southern for a second, who was your coach there? I have a pretty good idea. Yeah, Jack Stalling was the head coach. Larry Bryant was the assistant coach. Jack Stallings was a a uh, very colorful character in college baseball. You know, he had previously been at Florida State, and he was uh, he was a five foot four, a fireball. And I learned a different language when I was up there at Georgia Southern, uh, a language that was had probably every seventh word was a profane word. Whereas at that time in my life, I had not I had not uh, heard profanity in that way. So you get to Stetson, and you play your two years at Stetson, and you graduate, and then you take off for Australia for two years. Talk a little bit about that and that experience and, and what led you to go there. While I was here at Stetson, I fractured three vertebrae in my spinous process in my lumbar region of my back. Um, with that, it caused me uh, significant pain uh, only when I breathed. So uh, playing baseball was difficult uh, and painful for me. 
but I started working out at Nautilus in Lake Helen where Mike Fulford was and uh, the Nautilus uh, weightlifting machine was just being developed. So I went through a program out there for a significant part of my senior year. And as I was finishing up my senior year, I had two opportunities. Uh, George Zura, who was a super scout for the Cincinnati Reds at that point in time, uh, approached me and he had signed my high school uh, best friend who ended up being their third round draft pick, uh, Bob Buchanan. And he, George Zura approached me and said, I need you to come help him develop through the league. So what, what I want you to do is I'm going to sign you as a minor league bullpen catcher with our whole goal of developing you into becoming a coach. And then I had this second opportunity, which was, hey, we want you to come to Australia, start a professional baseball league in Australia, semi-pro league. Uh, and this is what we're willing to do. We're willing to pay your way over and back, your wife's way over and back, give you a house, give you a car, pay you this amount of money. Uh, and you're gonna play, you're gonna be the catcher on our team, you're gonna be a player coach for us as we start. Uh, so truthfully, between the two, the Australian one was more attractive to me. So I got on a plane uh, and flew to Perth, Western Australia with a commitment that I would be there two years no matter what happened. Uh, I couldn't leave the country for two years, my visa would not allow me. So I flew into Perth and had an absolute blast. Um, I is giving clinics all over the place. I worked with their national teams. I worked with their state all-star teams. The, uh, the, the league was uh, just developing, uh, which meant that they were not really that good, which made me really good, comparably speaking. Uh, so, you know, I, I even got to set up my own field when we played our home games. So I'd set left field, which I could pull the ball back then, I said left field at about 275 and then got to center field. It went out to 400 uh, and then right field was 375 and the gaps and 350 down the line. So when I came to the plate, uh, it's no wonder I led our team in home runs both years I was there. I set the field up depending on who was pitching against us. So <laughs> it, it, was, it was a tremendous experience. I, I, I was treated with respect and with dignity. Uh, the club that I was a part of was also had a professional football club. So I would be their celebrity guest at the owner's box uh, for the uh, Aussie rules football games. I would get invited to cricket matches and it was, it was just a, a tremendous experience. And truthfully, the only thing that happened is I got a little bored at the end of it uh, by after my first year, because we only played 27 games uh, in a year. And that was our schedule for the year. Well, I was used to playing 120 games in a year. Uh, and I get done with 27 games. I go, okay, what else are we going to do? Oh, you're taking off till the next whatever. Well, you can put a clinic or two on. So I put on clinic. I must have put on 35, 40 clinics in the span of 30 days. I must have clinicked every young kid in Western Australia that had any interest in baseball uh, and could tolerate my accent. And so when I get done with that, I'm going, okay, I'm still – I'm. I've got five months before the next season starts. Uh, so I said, well, you guys mind if I go ahead and start teaching school? So I started teaching school and I, I taught accounting and I taught math and I taught uh, 
I created a physical education program at a, at a school called LaSalle College and did that. And between that and putting on clinics, I kept myself busy for uh, that two-year period. I had an absolute blast. And then at the end of it said, you know what? I don't have a college degree yet. I need to go back to Stetson. I want to get into coaching. I really love this coaching gig. And I've, uh, I've now um, got playing baseball out of my system. So I had to have those two years to play it and be feel, feel like I got treated well. Now, an interesting story, uh, Ricky, is uh, for the first time in 30 years, I went back to Perth, Australia this past summer and visited the old fields and, and teammates and, and my college roommate who still, I brought him over when I was there. He's still living there and had an absolute blast. That had been a lot of reminiscing going on when you went down there this time. It was. I will tell you that Perth looks a lot different than it did 30 years ago. Uh, and there has been some really good development and some not so good things. You know, the, the baseball over there uh, continued to progress. And the league that we started ended up being a full professional league nationally uh, within uh, Australia and had probably peaked in its uh, – a fan and spectator and national television audience in late 90s, early 2000. And it still maintained a good point at this point in time, but it, it was really strongly popular in that time frame and had gained it. And now what happens is Major League Baseball teams are sending their uh, AA and AAA players over there uh, for winter ball because it is being played during the opposite time frame, and they're playing more than 27 games now. Were there any players over there during that time when you were coaching and involved that ever came to the U.S. and made a name for themselves? The one they might think of is Craig Shipley, who came over yeah. and played at Alabama, played in, played in the big leagues. He, he did, and uh, Warren Hughes was a young man that played on my team. Uh, my club actually got very upset with me. Uh, so he was a 16-year-old young man uh, that, that I identified um, when I came over my first year. Uh, he was not a good student, otherwise he would have been at Stetson. Uh, I ended up getting him to go to the University of South Alabama, uh, and where he's, he pitched for South Alabama, set some significant records, uh, played uh, minor league baseball for a lot of years, and now is working in uh, Major League Baseball as a scout uh, and has done a, a tremendous job. Uh, there's been uh, several uh, players that have Georgia Southern also, we had a nice connection with Georgia Southern through this. Jack Stallings used to put on clinics uh, over there in, in Australia. So I had some relationship with Jack at that point in time as well. But, yeah, there was, there was lots of players who came over. Warren Hughes was the one that I touched uh, and got to come here and, and play, and so he's the one I remember most. So fast forward, you come back to the States, come back to Stetson, finish your degree, become a graduate assistant, basically had to create your own position and got into coaching as a graduate assistant at Stetson. And from there, quickly moved up the ranks till you know, you're, what, 31, 32-year-old, you get offered the chair you're in now. Well, uh, it was actually 36 when I got offered this chair. Uh, and, but I was promised that when I was 32. Uh, and it was, it was kind of a, a nice situation uh, my wife, Sarah, uh, obviously is, uh, she, her family was from Deland, and, uh, and I loved the community that we were in. So when we came back, uh, 
I, I truthfully, Ricky, had three-year plans. I was going to come work for Stetson as finish my de undergraduate degree and two years of a graduate degree and then move on to the next job. But I really liked the land. And so I, I went up to Coach Dunn and said, hey, if I, if I raise enough money, will you pay me some of what I raise uh, and keep me on as an assistant? He agreed to that um, and gave me a chance to stay in coaching. And I stayed in coaching for quite a while. Uh, but I will tell you the two things that happened, or two things, the multiple things that happened. It seemed like every two to three years, uh, Stetson would offer me another opportunity. Um, that, and, and, and I'll be candid with you, a lot of it was tied to revenue creation. I had a, a niche for, for creating revenue um, in, in things that had not had revenue associated with them previously at the university. Um, and so that, that niche uh, continued to present uh, opportunities for me. And, you know, at the time, Doug Lee was president. And Doug was a former development officer. He was a revenue-driven person. Uh, Bob Jacoby, who was in the chair as AD, was a revenue-driven person and was willing to look at that. So that ability uh, continued to present opportunities for me. Uh, and, and then the only other time after, you know, because all that was occurring every two to three years, it seemed like some new opportunity came up. Uh, I, I've never been as satisfied with a job, though, in this job as I have been since Dr. Libby came on board. And 11 years ago, uh, you know, I didn't know what to expect, uh, presidential change. Uh, and Dr. Libby came on board and she actually enhanced my role at the university uh, and putting me at the vice president's table and saying, uh, hey, this is your integral part. What you're leading is an integral part of the institution. And we need you at the table uh, making these decisions and helping advance the university. And from that point, uh, I've, I've told this to her before, and I've told this many times, I have been exhausted since that point in time and satisfied in every aspect of my life professionally because of that. Um, and that, if, if that can happen, then you know you're in the right place. And I feel I'm in the right place. So you raised your family here. You have a son that works in athletics. But now things are different. Now you're a grandfather. Talk a little bit about how things have changed becoming a granddad. Yeah, that, uh, that is a, a, a world of difference, I, I will tell you. Um, I have two beautiful uh, granddaughters. My uh, youngest son, Garrett, uh, his daughter, Gabriella, will turn one uh, at the end of May. And uh, Valerie is my oldest son's daughter, Heath. Uh, and she turned one in January. Uh, Heath and his wife, Kyle, are also expecting a son in July. So I'm going to have a third grandchild here pretty quickly. Um, I will tell you, I Skype with them every week uh, or FaceTime with them every week. Uh, the, the kids, I think, know me. They know my, my sound of my voice uh, and they know my face because of that. So even though the distance in COVID-19 has, has shut down contact, physical contact, uh, I think that I still have a relationship with them that from the moment I even think about it, you can see, but just by talking with me and looking at me, you can see the smile in my face and the, and the upturned brow and everything is that the moment I start thinking about uh, those young ladies, uh, my, it, it's uplifting, it changes perspective. Uh, it makes uh, 
many of the decisions I have to make on a day-to-day -day basis is less stressful because I can, I know I can be uplifted by the thought of them at any moment. Um, and uh, when I see them, uh, it, it, it has that impact. I know, I know the answer because I've heard it from other people, but more rewarding being a grandfather or a father? You know, that's, that's a great question. And I've heard a lot of responses from uh, parents that uh, really like being grandparents. It's, it's all the fun without the responsibility. Uh, and I will tell you that I actually like responsibility. Um, and for me, so to answer the question from a rewarding standpoint, um, there has been nothing in my life that has been more rewarding than raising children. It's full of challenges. It's full of day-to-day, -day, you know, discipline, uh, activity that you have to conduct but it's absolutely completely filled with rapture of uh, experiences of day-to-day -day helping develop and mold and, and, and guide uh, a life and, and a human being. And to me, I don't, I don't know that there, I mean, the closest thing to that, I think is, is coaching. Uh, be perfectly honest with you because that's the only other environment that you spend that amount of time with somebody in such an intimate environment uh, that you do as you are as a parent so I would tell you the most rewarding for me has been being a parent uh, and watching their development I absolutely love being a grandparent uh, but it's a different reward it's it's more of a just I get to I get to have all the fun without any of the the uh, downside of it, whereas a parent, I had the downside with it, but I love that. I, to me, I enjoy that about my job. I enjoy the, the, the hard times and the tough times uh, because I, I know that's an experience that's unique and, you know, quite a while we won't be able to enjoy that. We're pushing up on an hour now, so I want to wrap this up with, ever since I've known you, you've always had, and it's been pushing almost 10 years now, uh, this incredible positive outlook on the future. Um, so give everybody your positive outlook on what our future is now. Well, I, I would tell you for the future of Stetson Athletics, it's in a wonderful position. Um, we are a strong contributing member of the university's culture, the university's financial position, um, and the university's never been in a better financial position than it is right now at this moment in time. Um, and so as a result of that, we've established and we have that credibility within this community that we're integral for, for what's happening. And that will continue. For me, as I, as I look forward with this challenge with, with COVID-19, it is that. It is a challenge that will cause us to evaluate what is most important in what we do. Um, and, and, and what do we take value out of every day? And what can we then mold to make sure that that advances us beyond where we've ever been before? And, and I think I see that. I, I, I can see that all of us are sitting at our homes mostly. Uh, we're sitting at our tables and we're saying, gosh, you know, when I look into that crystal ball and I know things are going to be tight, that's all right. It's all right for things to be financially tight. But what we want to do is make sure that that financially tight does not uh, create, uh, diminish what our objectives are and what we're trying to accomplish. 
and and I think that's what's going to occur. I think what you'll end up seeing when we come out of this is we'll see a group and a team that emerges, a team of coaches and administrators that are so committed to our student athletes and advancing them and giving them these tremendous opportunities to be a Division One athlete at an unbelievably challenging academic environment uh, at the highest level of competition possible. I, I don't. I don't think there's a there's a, a better environment to be in, and that's where we are right now. What do you think? What do you think is going to happen in in two years when we're back at full force and everything that we do? It's going to be better. Great way to finish. We look forward to having you back on the podcast again in the future, multiple times. Uh, we hope this will continue. Hopefully, our fans will enjoy this. Uh, fans, if you uh, have a response, have a questions, feedback, please provide that to the email address. Hatter chatter at stetson.edu. Hatter chatter at stetson.edu. Thanks again, Jeff. We we'll look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you, Ricky. Have a great afternoon. Go Hatters. GoHatters.Photoshelter.com is your one-stop shop for all of the most memorable moments from your favorite Stetson teams. Game day and event photos are available for purchase directly on the website. Show your Stetson pride and log on to GoHatters.Photoshelter.com to get your photos today. Insight Credit Union is a proud partner of Stetson University Athletics. Insight has been bringing better banking to Central Florida for nearly 85 years. Insight Credit Union is your local go-to for lower rates on auto and other loans, credit cards, and more. Insight Credit Union and you, better together. 